Well, good morning, Ocean View and Ocean View Online. This is the last week of our June series, or non-series. Uh, we've had a mixture of topics. Next week, we're going to be starting a new season, a new series for the summer in the Gospel of John. And uh, we're looking at the Gospel of John. And of all the miracles that Jesus performed on earth, John only uses seven. Each of them he describes as a sign. Uh, for example, he says this is the first of his miraculous signs. What were the seven? Why are they a sign? Join us this summer for signs. Today, we're going to be looking at the book, Engaging with the Bible. I've got some, of my, some books here. I have many, many more. I had many, many more. I tried to downsize, but I couldn't get rid of these. Uh, I've got the Greek text here and the Hebrew text. Uh, we have The Message, which was done by Eugene Peterson in the 90s. Uh, I have my King James Bible that I bought with money that my grandmother gave me on my graduation 50 years ago. Uh, and she gave me $20, and I went out and bought a Bible. So I evaluated that. 20 bucks at $3 an hour minimum wage was about uh, a day's wages. So this would be, you know, this is worth about $200 today. Yeah. Um, and then this one, this is a really interesting one. This is called an interlinear. So it has the Greek or Hebrew written, and under each word is the English translation. So it doesn't read easily in English, but you can see exactly what the Greek or Hebrew was and what it says and there's a, a relationship there. And then I have my newest Bible is there. And it's not just one. It has about 50 on them. And uh, I, I tend to use this one the most nowadays because it goes with me. And if somebody says, Pastor, can you read some script? Oh, yeah, right. I got my Bible. I don't have to carry it with me. So this is, this is cool. So one of the questions you have now on the Bible is, how did we get from here to here? We're going to look at that this morning. Hebrews chapter 4. We've been using illustrations all this month from, uh, from Grandpa's basement on God's Word. Uh, what do we mean in Hebrews 4 that it says it's living and active? So we're going to examine the living Word of God this morning. Why is it so important? Because so many people today simply do not understand God's Word. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Scripture says that the truth in this book, it's alive. It's not just words on a page, but it's living. It's life-transforming. It's powerful. It's active in every way, and yet, even though it's alive, so many people neglect God's Word. How many of you own a Bible? Okay, yeah. How many of you have two or more Bibles? How many of you, and you've got to be honest now, this week did not read your Bible every single day? Okay, so that, good. Honesty there, something about the Bible. You know, we have God's Word so readily accessible, but many of us neglect it. Psalm 119, verse 16 says, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect 
your word. The word for neglect is shakak. You can say that, shakak, shakak. That's, there's your Hebrew for today, shakak. Neglect. Now, neglect means to lay aside, to forget, to take for granted, that, that idea of neglecting. So it says, I will delight in your decrees. I will not lay aside your word. I will not forget your word. I will not take your word for granted. I will not neglect your word. Sadly, so many people today do neglect God's word. They take it for granted. This is the word of God. It is living and active. Now, Scripture also says that in the beginning was the word, John 1, 1. And the word, the logos in the Greek, was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And later on it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now the word, of course, here is Jesus. That's who John meant. This is Jesus, the word becoming flesh. To know him, to serve him, to follow him, we must feed on his word. And yet so many people neglect it. I will delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. So let's talk about how God brought his word to us. Started thousands of years ago. Around 1,400 years before Jesus came on this earth in, in a human form, God wrote the Ten Commandments to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, and God began speaking his word to us. Later, the first scriptures were written down by Moses, and that's known as the Pentateuch. They are now the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. And for a thousand years, or for a thousand years, the history, the stories, the prophecies were recorded on animal skins called scrolls. And a scribe, a writer, might use the animal skin of a deer, a cow, a sheep, never a pig, because that would have been unclean. And when the entire Pentateuch is found on a scroll, it is called a Torah in Hebrew. A Torah scroll. If it was completely unraveled, it would be 150 feet long. It would take an entire herd of sheep to make one Torah scroll, about 60 skins. So you can see that it would be very expensive. Your whole herd of sheep was taken and they made the scroll out of it. it took many years. It would be a very expensive thing. By 500 B.C., the 39 books that we know as the Old Testament were completed and continued to be preserved in Hebrew on handwritten scrolls. So let's talk about how God brought his word to us. God, oh, get rid of that. That's the same as last page. Okay, yeah. 39, okay, okay. There we are. There's a picture. There is a picture of a scroll. I kind of go with it. I don't know what I did with that. Uh, there's a, a picture of a scroll. It was donated to a university. It was a Torah scroll and, uh, at a seminary. And you can see how it's all rolled out and all those pages, all those columns. By the end of the first century A.D., the New Testament was completed. So that's the Old Testament. The New Testament, by 100 A.D., the New Testament was completed. And it was preserved in the Greek language. So not the Old Testament in Hebrew. The New Testament is in Greek. 
and it's on papyrus. Papyrus were reeds that were kind of pounded down into a paper, what we would know more commonly as paper. It's a little easier to get, a little less expensive than parchment or the scrolls. Now, here's the interesting thing. It was written in unseals. Unseals are the capital letters, so it was all capital letters in Greek, in Koine Greek, and there were no spaces because they're saving paper, right? So it's just one continuous line of capital letters. And as you read it, and so you try that in English, it's like, oh, I can read it. It's a little tricky, but I can read it. There's no spaces and there's no punctuation. You simply gather it from the context. 367, the Bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius, wrote in his Easter letter, and he listed all 27 of the books that you today read in the New Testament. 393, the African Synod of Hippo officially approved those 27 books as the New Testament. Now, there were many other letters and books that were purported to be written over the years, but the church had to discern which were authentically written by the first apostles. By the year 500, the Bible had been translated into over 500 languages, and people all over the known world at the time were thankful because they could read God's Word in their own language. But then something happened. In just the next century, the Bible was only allowed in one language, Latin. The Catholic Church of Rome at the time was the only recognized church in the land, in the, in the uh, western part. And they issued a decree that no Bible in any other language was allowed. If anyone possessed a Bible in any language besides Latin, the person holding the Bible would be executed. The church began to struggle with power. The Bible was in Latin, but that language was beginning to fade and decline over the centuries. And the successor languages such as Italian, Spanish, and French emerged. The priests were the only ones educated in the Latin language. Therefore, the common person couldn't read God's Word. The cost of copying a Bible was prohibitive. The education of the people was diminishing as well. This gave the priests ultimate power. They could teach what parts of the Bible they wanted to. They could even throw in some things that weren't even in the Bible at all. Between 400 A.D. and 1400 A.D., it became known as the Dark Ages. So how did the church break free? Once the Bible, the truth of God's Word, got into the hands of enough people and the right people, God used His truth through people to bring about the very successful reformation of the church. It began to reform. In the late 1300s, a man by the name of John Wycliffe, or Wycliffe, depending on where you're from, he was the first guy to translate the Bible into the English language. And even the language of that day would be very different than our language, but it was in English. In the English-speaking world, people were not allowed to read Scripture like they are able to do today. But when Wycliffe came into conflict with church leaders, he died in 1384. However, his followers started asking a lot of questions. And 44 years after Wycliffe's death, he was declared a heretic, and so they went and dug up his bones, burned them, and threw them in the river because he was a heretic. 
Some people say that Wycliffe, though, was the morning star of the Reformation. He was the one that God used to start the ball rolling in a very necessary reformation of the church. He had a student. His student was named John Huss. He was equally passionate about getting God's word into as many hands as possible. Huss, too, was called a heretic, and he was actually burned at the stake. So what do you think they used to start the fire around Huss as they burned him at the stake? They used Wycliffe's Bibles to get them going, and apparently the pages didn't light very well. So they were all a little frustrated getting this fire going, but it was there. And Huss's final words became known as a prophecy that helped direct the future of the church. Last words of John Huss were, in the next 100 years, God will raise up a man who calls, whose call for reform cannot be suppressed. And that's exactly what God did. And 100 years later, 1517, Martin Luther was raised up by God. He was fed up with a lot of the corruption in the church. And on All Hallows' Eve, or what we would know as Halloween, October 31st, Martin Luther took what became known as the 95 Theses, or 95 Arguments, a document with 95 claims of reform, and he nailed it to the door of the Wittenberg Church, which was the town bulletin board, and he put it up there just to get some discussion going. Oh boy, did he get discussion going. People now describe the event as the knock that was heard around the world. God used those claims to spark the Reformation and the emerging of the Protestant church. Martin also translated the Bible, but he translated it into the German language, which was where he was from in Germany. He then took the recent invention called the printing press, the invention of Gutenberg, and he began to print Bibles and got Bibles into the hands of the regular people. Luther was called a heretic. People wanted to kill him. So he spent much of his life on the run. But God used him to spark major changes in the church and to get the word of God into the hands of regular people. A few years later, 1526, William Tyndale befriended Martin Luther. And God used William Tyndale to print the very first English Bible. That's the good news. Bad news is, anyone who was caught with an illegal Bible would be executed. And there was a huge demand for English-speaking people who wanted to read God's Word in the language that they could understand. These people were incredibly creative. They smuggled Bibles into England in bales of cotton, in bags of flour. And it turns out the biggest buyers of Tyndale Bibles were the king's men. They would buy up as many English Bibles as they could to burn and destroy all of Tyndale's Bibles. So Tyndale would take the profits from the king's men buying the Bibles and he would print more Bibles. Unfortunately, this was all illegal and Tyndale was on the run for 11 years, the last 11 years of his life. And they finally decided in the year 1536 to burn him at the stake as a heretic. And his last words were, O Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. Three years later, 1539, God answered that prayer. Not only did King Henry VIII allow the printing of the Bible in the English language, but he helped to fund it, setting the word of God free. We remember all those people who died 
giving their lives, fighting to help God's living and active word to be available to you today. Sadly, so many people today, they shakak, they neglect God's living word. Too many people take it for granted, the word of God. It's living, it's active. Jesus is the word. The word became flesh. To know him, to serve him, to follow him, we must feed on his word. Yet so many people do neglect it. But the question is always asked, the words. The words on these pages, is it actually the word of God? Or are they, or are they just opinions of men? I believe that these books contain the truth of our living God. The Bible makes a claim for itself. In 2 Timothy 3.16 it says, All scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God breathed. There is the word. It is theopneustos in the Greek. And it means theo is God. Neustos, pneuma, is breath. God's breath. Divinely breathed. Given by the inspiration of God. And it's useful for correcting, training, rebuking. God's word will give you everything that you need to fulfill everything that God will call you to do. It is God's word. Is it God's word? I believe it is. God reveals himself to us in many different ways, but he does reveal himself to us in nature. Romans 1 tells us that. And sometimes, you know, you can go out, stand a, a starry sky, and you go... There's got to be a God. It's just so grand and majestic. A beautiful sunrise, sunset, and we see God. We see God in, in how nature is put together. But it's limited. God also reveals himself to us in the scriptures. There are things in there that we would not know otherwise. God loves us. We're a sinner. There is a way to get to God. Different authors wrote down their thoughts and experiences but it was what God wanted them to write. and We call it inspiration. All the words were there that God wanted recorded, and every word is what God wanted to be recorded. Jesus himself refers to this. Do you remember that memory verse? Maybe some of you learned in Matthew 5.18 in King James. For verily I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So what's a jot and a tittle? Uh, it actually is Hebrew. The word yot, jot is yod. That is the Y letter. And it's just a little, it's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if you look in my Hebrew Bible, you'll see a bunch of little yods. And it's just a little up at the top of your thing. Just a, that's it. A yod, and that's the y sound. The tittle is even smaller. If you see on the, your overheads there, you see bait and kaf. So b and k. They look almost identical except for the tittle. That little stroke, the bait, has a little uh on the bottom that the kaf does not. And there are about six Hebrew letters that use the tittle to differentiate one letter from the other letter, like resh and tate are different. So Jesus believed that all the Bibles, all the books of the Bible were inspired, and that every word of Scripture is the word of God, 
and so is true, and we can take them seriously. Uh, NIV translates it, For I truly tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The Bible has been the best-selling book in the history of the world. It is also the most shoplifted book in the history of the world. So you can't buy one, you steal one, I guess, is how it goes. There are 66 different books wrapped up into one. It is a mini-library. It contains 773,692 words in English. It takes the average person about 70 hours to read this book aloud. Written by all sorts of different people, about 40, in uh, thir between 30 and 40, politicians, statesmen, farmers, shepherds, peasants, musicians, poets, even a tax collector with the IRS. No, no, with <clears throat> it is a tax collector, though Matthew was a tax collector. Written in many different places. Moses wrote in the wilderness, Jeremiah in a dungeon, Luke while traveling, Paul while he was in prison, John while he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos. It was written in 13 different countries on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and a couple of books in, or chapters of books in Aramaic. The oldest book of the Bible is either Genesis or Job, both thought to have been written by Moses and completed around 3,400 years ago. The newest book, Revelation, was written about AD 90, about 2,000 years ago. Even though the Bible was written from people from all different walks of life over a span of 1,500 years, it has amazing accuracy and consistency. When it comes to the message about the character the nature of God and his redemptive plan for mankind. There is a consistency all through Scripture. The Bible is the Word of God. Not only is it consistent, true, and inspired, but it speaks to many different topics. So let's talk for a few minutes about the reliability. Is the Bible reliable? And um, scientists or kind of uh, educated, these guys who look at old documents and stuff, They've come up with some tests, and first is the internal test. What does the book say about itself? Do the writers claim their writings are true? Or do they say, hey, I'm just writing a story. I just made it up. Or do they say, no, I was there, I saw it. 2 Peter 1.16, Peter is writing, and Peter says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's saying, I'm telling you the truth. The New Testament was written between 47 and 95 A.D. So there were plenty of first-generation believers alive who saw firsthand all that the Bible, the New Testament, was talking about. They could have at any time refuted Scripture and said, hey, that's not true. That didn't happen. I was there. No, none of them did. Clearly across the board, everyone would say, yes, the Bible passes the internal test. But then there is the external test. What does the outside evidence say about the Bible? What do non-biblical sources say? 
Do they confirm Bible stories or do they say, well, those aren't really true? We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the historicity of Jesus is incredibly well established. Jesus did live. And there are a number of non-biblical writings about Jesus. The Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius both comment on Christos. There are other writers in the uh, Greek and Roman times in that area. Mara Barsarpion, the Agbar Tiberius correspondence. It's one king talking to another, Tiberius talking to Agbar, and they have a conversation and talking about these Christians. Pliny the Younger, Phlegion, Trales, Thales, Philo, Celsius all talk about this group. There are Jewish sources. The Babylonian Talmud actually says something. The uh, Dead Sea Scrolls give us evidence that during the time of Jesus, the Old Testament was as we see it today. Josephus was a, uh, uh, Josephus was a Hebrew, Jewish historian, worked with the Romans, but he wrote a history and he wrote about Jesus, John the Baptist, James, and other leaders that we read about in the book of Acts. What about archaeology, people say? Does archaeology disprove the Bible? Well, for many years, Bible critics discredited the Bible because they said, hey, archaeological discoveries don't support enough of Scripture. Scripture talks about the Hittites. We have no evidence of Hittites. Uh, but the 20th century has had all sorts of archaeological finds that are actually reinforcing the biblical narrative. Even recently, they've discovered King David's palace. And for a time, people weren't even sure King David existed. And now they're going, huh, here's a palace. It's got Phoenician capitals on it, exactly like the Bible said. While we cannot accurately say that the archaeology completely proves the authority of the Bible, it's fair to say that archaeological evidence has provided a lot of external confirmations for hundreds of biblical statements. We are finding archaeological discoveries that confirm the truth of what the scriptures say. Rabbi Nelson Gluck is the former president of the Jewish Theological Seminary and one of the greatest all-time archaeologists, and he said this, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. That's good news when you're putting the Bible to the external test. The last test, the third test, is the bibliographical test. How well were the original documents translated and transmitted to today? Understand this. This is not the original word of God. These are copies and translations. You would have to go right back to that animal skin that... Moses was writing on to have the original autographs. There are none of them today. So we have copies. How well has it copied? You know, copy. you've tried it. You, everybody's done the telephone test at school, haven't you? You have whole kids and you, you tell this kid something and they pass it around and it comes here and you go, that isn't what they said over here. It gets messed up. And when you think of centuries of trans admitting a message, does it come down to us? And how can we know that it is the original? How close is it to the original? Sometimes they made tons of copies. 
Sometimes they made very few copies. How were copies made in the Old Testament? Let's go to Old Testament, the Hebrew. There were scribes called the Masoretes. They copied the Old Testament scrolls, and today it's known as the Masoretic Text, the MT. They used skins of clean animals only. There were 48 to 60 lines per column. No more than three words could be outside the column or that page was scrapped. They would do none of the copying by memory. They would pronounce the word, then they would write the word. Pronounce the next word, write the next word. They would do a revision of that page within 30 days. They would count the letters on the, manu on the parchment section. If, it didn't match, if the copy did not match the same number as the original, they would destroy it and start again. When the copy would wear out, it would be ceremonially buried or destroyed if there were, uh, when, it was, when they were finished with them. So here's an amazing part of the story. The Masoretes did very, very great care in transmitting to us today the uh, Masoretic text. The earliest, the ones that we tend to use is called the Leningradingus. It was found in Leningrad, and I don't know the date of it, but it's what we kind of use as our text for, um, for the Hebrew text. Here's the amazing part of the story. In A.D. 70, 70 A.D., after Jesus Christ, 70, the Romans were attacking the Jewish people, attacking Jerusalem. They were trying to destroy their culture and their religious heritage. So a group at the Qumran community took their scrolls put them into clay jars, sealed them up, and hid them in caves. For 1,800 years, those biblical scrolls remained completely hidden. In 1947, a Bedouin shepherd stumbled upon some of these old bottles. Inside, he found what became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. When you compare the Dead Sea Scrolls written about 60 to 70 A.D., with the Masoretic text that we have today of about 1400 A.D., the accuracy is phenomenal. It is almost exactly the same. We can really see it's been transmitted. The New Testament is a bit different. It was written in Koine Greek as opposed to Classical Greek. That was the gutter Greek. That was the stuff everybody spoke in all, uh, all the areas. They might have another language, but everybody kind of spoke Greek in the world. So it was, it was the word that what the apostles and what Paul actually used because everybody could read it. It was a common language throughout the Roman Empire because of Alexander the Great, who was trying to make everybody Greek. Christianity was spreading so quickly People wanted copies of the Gospels and the writing of the Apostles. So not as great a care was taken in copying. Sometimes they just copied and copied as quick as they can, sent it out so that these guys could have it, and then they translated it and they sent it to these guys. And sometimes they made a mistake here or there. Sometimes a monk would make an adjustment. He goes, this doesn't make a lot of sense. So he changed it a little bit. Or, oh, this would be good to kind of clarify and add a little bit. But there were many copies, even many translations. And as they wore out, they were not 
destroyed. Often they were found in the basement of some church or some monastery. Centuries later, these have been discovered, and they all add to our knowledge of the early texts. Here's the amazing thing. The differences in the text are minor, and the science of textual criticism has allowed us to have a copy that we can feel comfortable knowing that it was very close to the original writings. How accurate are biblical copies? Well, let's compare the Bible to some other historical writings. In high school, you might have had to read the Odyssey or the Iliad. Anybody remember that? The Odyssey and the Iliad, written by Homer. The Iliad by Homer is the most accepted non-biblical historical writing around. How many copies do you think we have of the Iliad? 643 copies of the Iliad. Now that would be considered a ton. Plato's Republic has seven copies. Aristotle has five. Caesar has ten. So the most accepted non-biblical historical writings would unquestionably be the writings of Homer with 643. How many copies do we have of the New Testament? 24,000 of the New Testament. When you compare that against all other historical writings, the Bible unquestionably passes the bibliographical text. This next uh, slide that you're going to see is, uh, you can't hardly see that, but it shows the uh, old Herodotus, Thucydides, Tacitus, Caesar, Livy's Roman, takes Caesar's Gaelic Wars. We assume Caesar wrote Caesar's Gaelic Wars. Of course Caesar wrote it, and we can read it, and maybe you had to read some of it in high school or university. How many copies do we have of Caesar's Gaelic Wars? Nine. What is the earliest copy? A.D. 900. We don't have anything before that, and we kind of go, yeah, that's Caesar's Gaelic Wars or Tacitus. None of these guys are before 900. New Testament, what is the earliest manuscript we have? 130 A.D., and we have some pieces from 110 A.D. That is a span of 30 to 300 years. How many copies? 5,000 in Greek, 10,000 in Latin, 9,300 other languages. We're very, very close to the original, so we can see in the New Testament how close it is to the original autographs. You know, some books thrive best in their own language. If you were a proponent of the Koran, you would argue that the Koran is untranslatable. The Bible, though, translates into all languages. Bible translators are working around the world to put it into all languages. And there's so many English translations, isn't there? Which is the right translation? Well, here's, let's look at Bible translations. Bible translations are basically two approaches. You can go word for word, similar to my interlinear here, right? Word for word. Or way over on this other side is thought for thought. So instead of just taking word for word, that gets really clumsy because you're dealing with Greek thought, Hebrew thought, and if you translate it word for word, it doesn't go well in English. And you can imagine reading that in, in your 
in your uh, services, and it would be a little stilted and, and awkward. So we go, well, what is the whole sentence or the whole paragraph? What is it saying? How would I say that in English? Some translations you would be familiar with, word for word, King James Version is close there. New American Standard is even better word for word, but it does read stilted. On the other hand, way over on this side, thought for thought, the message. Or New Living Translation would be in this area. In the middle, New International Version. That's the one I use most is that. But they are all translations just done in different ways. And depending, my cousin who uh, is a Bible translator, works in the Sindhi language, Hindu. Uh, he says, when, uh, when a tribe we translate into a tribal language, they want thought for thought. But as they become older and older Christians and more and more experienced, more, they, they want more word for word and say, I want word for word. I want to be able to translate it into my own language. So there's a whole variety of use. What I find is young people need more thought for thought. As we get older, we are more concerned word for word. Pastor Craig Rochelle from Life Church in Oklahoma was doing an interview with a magazine, a ministry magazine. He was asked, if you could have all of your people do one thing that you would believe would be most valuable for your church to change the world, what would that one thing be? He had to think a bit. That would be an interesting question for, for a pastor, for us as well. What's the one thing, if our church kind of picked it up, what's the one thing? Would it be to have you all be incredibly generous and use our resources to give to people who are in need? Would it be to have all of you become mission-minded and go into the world and tell people about Jesus? Or maybe our one thing would be to be prayerful, that you'd be a people of prayer, and you'd say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would our one thing be that you would be very godly in all you do, and people would see your godliness and desire? Would it be that you would be so full of the joy of God that others would be so hungry? For what you have. If we could have one thing, maybe it would be to be incredible parents, yet you'd raise the next generation of Christian leaders and they would carry on the message of the gospel. What would be your one thing? Here's how Craig, Pastor Craig answered I would have our people daily read God's word, not just read it, but do what it says. Because if you do what it says, then I believe all those other things that we talked about would happen. You would be godly parents. You would be godly in all ways. You'd be full of the joy of God. You would be generous, not holding on to the worthless material things of the world. You would be prayerful. You would be mission-minded if we truly valued and honored the Word of God. Life Church, Pastor Craig Rochelle, we're so committed to helping people read the Bible that they set up a website. And they fund the website. And it's one of the premier websites for the Bible today. It's called YouVersion. And it's free. You can download the Bible app. The Bible on your phone. And it's on there. The Bible. 
and it comes up, and you, you, have to, you go to the website, you get the Bible app, you put the Bible app on your computer or on your phone, you go to plans, and there are a variety of plans. Read all the Bible in a year, read a section for a month, read one book. Uh, Sandra and I have been doing the Bible in one year for the last six or seven years. And so this morning, we were reading a little devotional. It came from Nikki Gumbel, who does the Alpha series. And Nikki does this whole devotional. It takes about five, six minutes. His wife always adds a little killer at the bottom. You always want to hear what Pippa says because it's always funny. Then they do either Proverbs or a psalm. And then one chapter from the New Testament. And then two to three chapters from the Old Testament. Now, we were doing this for a number of years and quickly reading it while we're eating our breakfast. Then we discovered something. We discovered that if you push this little thing up here, this is the Bible in one year, day 176. The power of prayer. A few years ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, and we don't have to read it anymore. We can listen. <laughs> and there's this Earl Grey Jones guy that reads all of the scripture for us and just put it down and, and you kind of eat your cereal and you listen to the Bible. And that, you know, you know what that does? When I get to all those names in the numbers, I read them real quick. I don't. This guy reads them all. Hour after hour. Poor guy, I tell you. But it's just a different way. I'm not in hearing. I'm not a, a hearing person. I don't learn by hearing. I learn by looking. And so I found it a bit difficult to get into. But it's, it's a new way to, to do our Bible reading every day. Now that's version. Here's another resource for you. The second online resource is Bible Gateway. Go to Bible Gateway. You can look up words, verses, phrases. You can get parallel translations. They have over 200 versions and languages, 70 different English versions and all the other languages as well. It's free. And uh, you can check out, and so I use that a lot in looking up scripture, copying, pasting, putting into my text and stuff as I'm working, multiple versions, and a lot of other resources. If you are still want to get into Bible study, and this is, maybe pastors do, but this is for you too, there is another one called the Bible Hub. The Bible Hub into Linear. Now, you can't see that really well because it's really tiny there, but it is like my interlinear Bible here. So each verse has the Greek or Hebrew. Above it has the way to pronounce it in Greek or Hebrew. Above that is a number that tells you in the dictionary where that number is, that what's called a lexicon, so you can look it up and find out what the scholars say that word means. Down below it, it has all of the, uh, what was it, all of the parsing. Well, it's parsing. Some of you know what parsing is. Parsing is tells you whether it's a noun, a verb, an adjective. It's in the first person. Is it what tense? Is it future, past, future, perfect, pluperfect? Which one is it? It has all that. It used to take me, I have about $500 worth of books to do my translation work. It used to take me about half an hour to do one verse. 
I can go to this one, type in the verse, and click. In an instant, it's all done for me. And it's free. <laughs> it also has 12 other resource books like the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. Look at this verse. What other verses are talking about this verse? What other topics are talking about this verse? Tons of stuff. And it's free. Here's a slide that shows you where you can get those on your computer. At the desk, Jen has some little pieces. If you want any of that, it is there. But I would encourage you, read the Bible. Do not shukak. Do not neglect the Word of God. Now, maybe you're going to say, but you know, I, I, don't, I don't get much out of Bible reading. Scripture says that the God of this age, Satan, tries to blind the minds of unbelievers. Your mind may have been blinded to the truth of God. Scripture says that spiritual things are discerned by spiritual people. Maybe you've never been spiritually born anew. Maybe you read God's word, but it doesn't make any sense to you. Maybe you tried to pray to God, and it seems like there's a ceiling. Maybe there is. I had a friend in Armstrong, one of my first churches, and Glenn said to me, you know, I have been going to churches for years, and I just couldn't understand that Bible thing. But he says, you know, since I became a believer, I read it and I go, how did I not see this before? Scripture says all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Scripture says that our sin nature separates us from a holy God. Scripture says that God is so holy he cannot even look on sin. And Scripture says that God so loved you that he sent his only son, Jesus, the Word made flesh, Jesus was without sin. He died the perfect death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And scripture says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you recognize that you're apart from God and want to be one with God, you want to know him, you want to be filled with the Spirit, then call on the name of the Word made flesh today. Call on the name of Jesus. He will save you. He will forgive you. He will make you new. Yes, Jesus, save me and be the Lord of my life. We have a little video here about the Bible, and then I'm going to ask Connie to come and do the pastoral prayer for us. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its stories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good, the design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, health to the soul, 
and a river of pleasure. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Pray it in, read it through, live it out, and pass it on. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, thank you.